Hi, welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This is your host, Josh Campson. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Kathleen Creamer. Kathy is the managing attorney of the Family Law Unit at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. So essentially that means she is in charge of all the attorneys that represent parents in the dependency system in Philadelphia. Now we did nerd out a little bit here about dependency law and child welfare law because that's what I do as well, but I hope you appreciate the indulgence and if that's uh, not something you're normally interested in, hopefully this will give you a little bit of an insight into that system and the foster system and uh, people having their kids removed and how all of that works, especially in the context of the pandemic. So take a listen. I hope you enjoy it. As always, don't forget to rate, review, five stars on iTunes, uh, five stars everywhere else, and make sure to tell your friends. And again, thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. Enjoy the show. Well, Kathleen, thanks for joining us here on Interrogatories. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We started uh, recording just now, but before we were recording, you said you've had three shots of espresso so far today? Yes, and that's just the beginning of my day. <laughs> is that is that your normal caffeine allotment? Uh, that's uh, the normal breakfast allotment, and then there's the lunch allotment. So um, I'm really glad to be back in the office a little bit because there's a great coffee shop around the corner for me. So at lunchtime, that's where I'll be. What's your coffee shop of choice? You can give them a shout out unless you don't want people to stalk oh, yeah. you there. Cologne. No, La Cologne. They're amazing. I'm oh, yeah. so lucky to have them in Philly. Oh, yeah. La Cologne is great. Uh, now, are you making this espresso at home on your own? Or are you make, are you only you're just like giving hundreds of dollars a day to La Cologne? <laughs> I make it on my own. You know, my daughter is 10 and she had a school project where they had to name their prize possession. And... I was like, hmm, what's my prize possession? I think it's actually my espresso machine. <laughs> is this like a super fancy espresso machine? Or how how intense is it? Yes, my mom got it for me for my birthday. It's a it's a nice Nespresso espresso machine. I enjoy it very much. <laughs> okay. All right. Nespresso is not too crazy. It's not like it's no. a professional grade. You know, you sometimes you go into people's houses and they've got essentially a barista set up. Yeah, no, I'm not that sophisticated, but it does the trick. Yeah. My first law firm, my partner and I uh, had purchased some furniture from a guy that was retiring, and he did have like a very nice espresso machine that he was going to sell us for like 200 bucks. And we decided not to take it because we were already getting a little too deep into our coffee. Mm. And we thought if we had that in the office, I mean, we had a Keurig, and if we had that in the office, it would have just been out of control. (laughs) So uh, we did not buy that, probably for the best for everyone. So, Kathleen, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you're our first lawyer from Philadelphia. Uh, you're at Community Legal Services. And what do you do there? I mean, I, I know you're the managing attorney of the Family Law Unit, but for those that don't know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm the managing attorney of the Family Advocacy Unit. And we have a really unique practice representing parents in child welfare cases. So we have what we call like a holistic family defense model where we pair attorneys with social workers and paralegals. And now we have a peer advocate on staff to kind of help parents navigate child welfare involvement. And how long have you been doing that? Let's see. So I moved to Philly in uh, 2006 and started as a staff attorney here in the Family Advocacy Unit. And then I was promoted to managing attorney in um, 2015. So I'm almost at my six year anniversary as managing attorney. Oh, nice. And how many attorneys in your unit? So we have 
seven staff attorneys, one fellow who just joined us as an Equal Justice Works fellow. And then we have three social workers, two paralegals, one peer advocate, and one fabulous, fabulous secretary. Uh, so it sounds like a nice staff there. So is this something you wanted to do when you were in law school, represent parents in dependency court? How did you come to be in this position? That is such a good question because um, law school did not prepare me at all for practice independency court. And in fact, it was not at all something that I was aware of as a career path when I was in law school. Um, I actually in law school knew I wanted to be a public interest lawyer and got really interested in mass incarceration and the experience of people in jail. And my second summer after law school, I interned at North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services, which is um, a general legal services organization for prisoners. And we handled all sorts of things, um, including post-conviction appeals, but also things around the conditions of confinement for people in jail. And I spent that summer, um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for law school and so um, North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services in Raleigh, but I spent the whole summer driving to jails and prisons all over the state of North Carolina, talking to prisoners. And I loved it. <laughs> I um, absolutely loved it. I loved meeting the prisoners and hearing about their experiences. And I really uh, came to understand um, how the narratives and the media um, were so harmful and, and inaccurate about who goes to jail and why they're there. And I also started recognizing the um, kind of overlap between family law and prisoners' rights because I we I would go to the moms, the women's jails and meet moms. And every time I met a mom who was incarcerated, the, the only thing she wanted to talk about was her child and how her child was doing and how she could contact her child. And very often these moms had child welfare cases. So I got very interested in the kind of collateral costs of mass incarceration doing that work. And then I graduated and I got a clerkship at DC Superior Court Family Court and got to see a lot of dependency cases in action. And then I really got a dream job after that. I was hired to be the director of legal services at Our Place DC, which is a women's reentry nonprofit. So it was an amazing space because it was largely staffed by women who had experienced incarceration. And I got to work alongside of them, kind of welcoming women home, going out to jails and prisons and talking to women about um, their rights and their legal issues. And uh, again, I saw again, the kind of uh, desperation that women behind bars have to connect to their families, to know right. how their children are doing. So anyway, and then um, I was I was loving that job, and my husband then got a job offer in Philadelphia, and said, "Would would you be willing to move?" And I, I said, "Okay." I, I grew up in the army, so that was just kind of like what you did—you just moved every couple of years. So I said, "Okay," and so we moved to Philly, and I got hired as a staff attorney. Um, so I had I hadn't actually practiced dependency law, but I had kind of under come to understand. Uh, dependency law and how it showed up, particularly in the lives of women who are experiencing incarceration or criminal justice involvement. So the, to those who don't know, what is dependency law and child welfare? I mean, I think we use those terms, or at least practitioners mm -hmm. use those terms interchangeably, child welfare law, dependency law. What are those things? So dependency law is a law that is governed by the Juvenile Act in Pennsylvania, 
where DHS, the Department of Human Services, is the moving party, uh, and they are seeking uh, to either compel the parent to do certain things, like accept certain services in the home or complete certain programming, or they're seeking to separate a family because they've come to the conclusion that a child can't safely stay at home. So the parties in the dependency proceeding are the state, um, in, in Philadelphia, represented Philadelphia DHS, represented by the city law department, uh, the parent, and the child. Um, and so often, yeah, when I would go to jail and prisons, uh, folks wouldn't know if they had a dependency case or a custody case. Right. Um, and so I would always say, well, first of all, one quick way to know is how many lawyers are there in the room? Because if there's a ton of lawyers, there's a great chance that you're in dependency court. The way I explain it when people call me is uh, if it's a custody case, which I don't handle, it means your ex is trying to take your kids. And if it's a dependency case, which I do handle, the state's trying to take your kids. So that's my short way of handling, of determining if a potential client is uh, someone that I can help or someone that somebody else needs to help. Mm, good. Yes. Yeah. So now that you're the managing attorney, do you still handle active cases? I do, but I have a much smaller caseload. I, I try to kind of handle, I don't know. 10 cases a year or something along those lines, because I really spend a, a large bulk of my time kind of overseeing other people's practice. Um, but I try to hold on to some cases just to see what's happening in family court to kind of understand what families are going through. We're always in a cycle of, in Philly, I'm sure this is true, uh, where you practice as well, of, of reform, of trying new things, trying to do things better, um, and trying to uh, understand the needs of families differently. And so it's really helpful to me to continue to maintain some kind of practice so that I can see how's it working out for families. So when, you know, but now it seems like you spend a lot of your time, you know, speaking and, you know, you're active in the ABA child welfare realm. Uh, what are you seeing at a national level as well as at a local level, the impact of the pandemic on this system, this child welfare system, people having their kids taken and or returned, you know, what have you been seeing in your, you know, you're kind of at the big picture level now. So at the 50,000 foot level, what have you been seeing? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, one cool thing about working at community legal services is that our practice model um, is one that combines direct representation of clients with kind of policy and systemic advocacy. And that's always been part of our practice model, but I've been fortunate moving into the managing attorney role to devote more of my time to kind of that policy work. Um, and it has been a really challenging time for families. Um, I, I do feel lucky and I do want to acknowledge that uh, we have a great relationship with the Philadelphia Department of Human Services leadership. And so uh, for instance, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw all parent-child visits suspended. Um, so when children yep. go into foster care, um, it, children experience foster care as an extraordinary trauma. Even if they needed to be separated from their families, they um, suffer enormously from that separation. And one of the best things we can do for kids who have experienced the trauma of family separation is connect them to their families, give them the opportunity to have visits and contact with their birth families. And the pandemic kind of took that away. Uh, and so we were seeing kids in foster care who were left to only see their moms and dads on Zoom at best. 
And that was really traumatic. It was really traumatic for the kids. It was really traumatic for the parents, for some older youth or certain, certain more mature children. Zoom worked okay. Uh, but, you know, we know developmentally Zoom means almost nothing to a nine month old. Right? right. And so those children lost incredible, um, incredible months of bonding and attachment with their birth families that will probably, um, you know, we'll probably see the ripple effects of that for the rest of their lives. So um, in Philly, I am very fortunate that we have a great relationship with our commissioner. And so we work very closely, like side by side with the Philadelphia Department of Human Services and other advocates to try to get visits back online. Um, and so we did. And so now in Philly, every parent and child in the child welfare system are entitled to in-person visits. Uh, what I will say is that is not something that is true across the country. We're still hearing stories all the time of families only being permitted to visit by Zoom. Um, and that has been devastating. We're over a year into the pandemic and we know of families across the country who've only been able to connect in person a handful of times. Um, so that part of the pandemic has really been painful and devastating for families and understanding that we are, uh, disconnecting families and robbing them of in-person times together at the same time that we're going through a global crisis, right? I mean, we've all experienced the stress and trauma of a, this global crisis and so to add on the stress and pain and trauma of family separation on top of COVID um, and the inability for families to connect, I mean, the cruelty of it is unspeakable uh, and the cost to children is just unspeakable. So I still remain very concerned about agencies that have failed or continue to fail to support in-person contact. And then the other thing we're seeing across the country is the punishing impact of the termination of parental rights time clock. So I would love to get into that, but I want to pause in case. Yeah, well, um, put a pin in that for one second, because mm-hmm. um, I agree with that. And normally we don't get this substantive on this uh, show, and that's probably, you know, uh, as a host and someone that does dependency law, I'm probably going deeper than we normally would, but I think it's good and it's interesting for people to know about this area of law that, you know, frankly, I graduated law school and didn't even know it existed, mm-hmm. uh, which was a blessing, obviously, touch wood. But uh, one of the issues I find interesting talking to people that handle dependency law around the country and going to these conferences and this and that is, you know, it's really traumatic to the families, obviously. Um, And we are, as practitioners, really directly or indirectly exposed to that trauma of reviewing child abuse cases and dealing with people who may have committed serious crimes or been alleged to have committed serious crimes. I do criminal defense as well. Um, But my question for you and things I'd like to ask other practitioners is how do you deal with that piece of this job that you are constantly, uh, maybe not anymore now that you're more of it at a supervisory level, but obviously for the first five to 10 years of your career, um, number one, dealing with a lot of people that are uh, experiencing mental health issues and or substance abuse disorders. But number two, being tangentially exposed to this level of trauma, whether it's to kids, to families, et cetera. You know what I mean? At some point, I, I would think it takes a toll on people. And I'm curious how you deal with that and how you handle that. If oh, that question made it. any sense. 
Oh, I love that question. And honestly, I, it's actually a question I still ask myself yeah. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it's a practice like managing stress and vicarious trauma is a practice. Um, and some days I do better than others. Um, just to put in a quick plug, I'm actually going to be speaking about this very topic at the ABA National Parent Representation Conference, May 20th to 21st. So I was actually just meeting with my social worker yesterday to talk about how can we share strategies and techniques for people doing family defense around managing stress, burnout, vicarious trauma. It is really, really hard. And one thing I was talking to my social worker about is um, we really need to be cautious about. Um, sending a message that there's an easy solution to this. Um, it really is a practice. Um, and so, I mean, one thing that I feel enormously grateful for is um, having a child because my daughter will remind me if I'm working too many hours or um, working too hard and kids really uh -huh. require you to live in the moment and refocus on the moment. Um, so I think that has been a huge blessing for me in terms of really you know, stopping my work at the end of the day and focusing on my family. Um, I love to exercise, um, specifically walk. So like I kind of, um, I'm very fortunate. I live by the art museum and I can walk down to the office every day. And like that, like hours worth of walking a day, like really helps me kind of decompress and unwind. Um, so you didn't put on, did you put on the COVID in my case, 25 or COVID-19 as some people are dealing with, uh, <laughs> Or you were able to get all that walking in, so you've been okay the whole time. Yeah, I mean, was, I actually did it because the one thing that you were still allowed to do in COVID is walk. And so I stopped walking down to the office so much, and I started doing more hiking and walking around my neighborhood and exploring places in my neighborhood I had never really spent time at. So, um, yeah, walking, like, I can't imagine my life without it. I'm so cranky on days where I don't get a walk in. So um, I, I, but I think, you know, find that thing that, that kind of helps you step away um, is really important. Um, and then one thing I feel so incredibly fortunate about is working in an office where we talk about it, where it's a subject that no one is afraid to bring up, that we, where we all acknowledge the kind of stress and pain and trauma of this work, and we support each other. Um, another thing that I can't imagine is doing this work without social workers on staff. Social workers are people to have, it's really amazing to have folks who are kind of trained at helping other people cope right in your very office and you can go knock on their door or schedule a Zoom with them. So that has been incredibly helpful for me as well. Uh, so during the pandemic, during the lockdown, you were walking a lot, uh, discovering new places in your neighborhood. What kind of stuff did you discover in your neighborhood? Well, I actually had discovered it before, but I just spent a ton of time there. If you, uh, go by the art museum, look up Lemon Hill, because I just love Lemon Hill. Um, it is a spot that's kind of off of Kelly Drive that's you kind of have to climb up it a little bit. But once you get up there, there's this like beautiful view of the art museum and a little bit of the Philly skyline. It's just such a beautiful, peaceful place. There's like fields and play a playground and it's just a wonderful place to walk around. And I, I didn't visit it that often um, before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, I was there like every day and it was just so nice to have right there. So that's what you were doing with your extra pandemic energy. You weren't making silly Amazon purchases like 
I was, oh. I guess, and other or other people, or were you also making unnecessary uh, quarantine purchases? Oh, wildly, wildly unnecessary purchases for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my my husband is always like, oh, there's another package. Oh, there's another one. Yes, totally. <laughs> what, what would you say? What would you say was your you know uh, memorable lockdown purchase or expense that looking back you're like, what was I doing with myself? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I don't know. If you look at my Amazon order history, I think the worst thing I do is I just buy like one stupid thing, (laughs) like one phone charger. And I'm like, like, why? Like I'm making somebody drive out to my house to deliver one extra phone charger to me. Um, Well, they're employed then. Yeah, that's true. I I guess it's fueling the economy, but trickle down uh, economics or whatever, right? Is that how that works? (laughs) Well, that's that's good. That's a uh, phone charger doesn't seem like that extravagant a purchase. So you know, I think no, your husband like can relax. Yeah. yeah, but of course that and of course that phone charger came in a huge box, much mm-hmm. bigger than was necessary. I'm sure. Yes. Uh, so in terms of your practice, you started talking about the timeline for termination of parental rights, which you know, uh, essentially is in every state there is a statute that says by a certain amount of time, if the parents haven't been reunited, uh, the state is supposed to terminate their parental rights, what some have called the civil death penalty. Um, what do you think about that during COVID? I know I've had my opinions, but you're the guest. So I'm, I want to know what your thoughts are. I noticed that, by the way, the context here in Pennsylvania and other states is that people's right to a speedy jury trial in a criminal case has been suspended. So the mm. government has not been required to bring people to a trial in a timely fashion. Uh, but the rules about terminating rent parental rights have not been suspended. With that uh, softball, what are your thoughts? Mm, so good. I, this is something I think about a lot, and I've done a ton of advocacy around at the national level. I'm super passionate about it. So um, in 1997, the federal law, the Adoption Safe Families Act, was passed that said um, that for most families who enter the child welfare system, For those of you who aren't familiar with the child welfare system, most families who enter, enter for reasons of neglect, which is often very strongly correlated with poverty. Really rare to see cases of child abuse in my my practice. Um, But nevertheless, uh, there was a sense in 1997 that families were being given too much support and time to work on reunification if they were separated by the government. So there was a law passed called the Adoption and Safe Families Act that said Uh, We will work with families around reunification for 15 months, and then if they have not achieved reunification uh, in around 15 months, we're going to file to terminate parental rights to free children for adoption. So that's a very severe binary for kids. So what the government's essentially saying is, um, we took you from your mom or dad uh, for reasons of kind of poverty and neglect, and we'll work on putting you back together with your family but only for but so long. And if that those efforts don't uh, lead to reunification in 15 months, you will never see your parents again because we are gonna sever the most important relationship in your life for the rest of your life um, via termination of parental rights. And that was already a very draconian and harsh um, policy uh, before COVID especially given all that we know about the needs of children to have lifelong connections with their own families. But it became extraordinarily punishing during COVID because families were kept on this time clock that 
uh, was already challenging to meet in normal times, and then we're being deprived of the things that families need to have to reunify, like visits, like the ability to attend a drug and alcohol program, like a parenting class, like regular court hearings where you can get in and tell the judge, look, I'm ready to have my child back. Look at all the progress I've made. So we kind of took away all the conditions that folks need to support reunification, but we didn't take away the clock that says, if you can't get to reunification in 15 months, we are going to end your family forever. So I mean, I've been fortunate in Philadelphia, our um, court issued a standing order kind of recognizing that um, this is unrealistic. And we have had some guidance from the federal government suggesting that the pandemic could be an exception to that 15 month rule. The stress and uh, lack of services caused by the pandemic could be an exception to that rule. And our court has recognized that and has asked DHS to kind of recognize that um, lack of services is an exception to the 15 month timeline. Um, again, I credit that to just the great relationship we have with Philadelphia DHS and the courts, but across the country, uh, no such recognition exists. And so there was a really terrific article in the imprint, which is a child welfare news daily that came out yesterday that I was quoted in talking about this issue um, because we tried to get legislation passed to stop the ASFA clock during the pandemic, stop the 15 month clock of termination of parental rights during the pandemic. And that legislation really stalled in Congress uh, and we're seeing the effects of that right now. We're seeing the effects of families who didn't get any support, any services, or very limited support and services, um, very little family time visitation. And we're seeing those families still stuck on this kind of conveyor belt towards termination of parental rights. So it's very, very upsetting. And I worry very much about what the next kind of six months to a year hold for families because we're coming up on that 15 month anniversary of the pandemic. And how do you see uh, Pennsylvania in this grand scheme of things? In other words, where do they fall? I'm mean, obviously Philadelphia sounds like it's been okay, but in terms of a national uh, approach, you know, to child welfare law in general, where is Pennsylvania in the spectrum? Are we doing things right here? Lots of room for improvement. What are your thoughts? Not just on the termination issue, but in general. I mean, when I, well, it's interesting because I get to, I do get to talk to advocates across the country, and you know, being working with families every day, I you know, can easily fall into a mindset of, oh, what a terrible system. Um, families are suffering so much. But then when I go to these conferences and meet people from other states, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> it can get way worse. Um, so, I, you know, it's hard to say that this is a good system. No family wants to be involved in the child welfare system. But I do feel fortunate in Pennsylvania that there are a lot of good people trying to do better. Uh, by children and families. So uh, we have started to kind of recognize as a country and then also in Pennsylvania very much that one of the best things you can do to keep a kid safe is to support her family. Um, and we've started to recognize that family separation is a very toxic intervention. There are some kids who need it, but um, it really should be used sparingly because it has lifelong costs to children to, to be separated from their families. So, and then the other thing that we've kind of been recognizing uh, across the country is one of the best ways we have to keep kids safe is to support and engage their family and listen to their families. Uh, so in, in Pennsylvania, we're fortunate to have 
judicial leadership that recognizes that. The AOPC Children's Roundtable has been a really powerful space for some of those principles and recognizing the importance of family engagement. So Philadelphia is um, a family engagement initiative county. So the Children's uh, Roundtable, the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts has a Children's Roundtable that is managed by their Office of Children and Families in the Courts. And they started a family engagement initiative where they're going into counties and supporting counties and figuring out how to better engage and support families early on and prevent family separation. So I, there are lots of places across the country that aren't really shifting their practice and dialogue around family engagement um, and the harms of family separation. But, but Pennsylvania is a place where the dialogue is definitely changing and there are lots of good folks trying to reduce the kind of more harmful interventions of the child welfare system. So you think the uh, arc of justice is going in the right direction here? I, you know, I'm an optimist. So. <laughs> good. I can tell. I can tell. That's good. It's good that this is not, you know, uh, some people I talk to in this world are much more beaten down. So it's good to hear from someone that is a, an optimist in this world, in this, not only this world, the big world that we live in, but the world of child welfare law. And that yeah, I, mean, I have to remind myself, I mean, I definitely have bad days, but I have to remind myself that nobody went into this work, nobody enters child welfare because they want to see people suffer. You know, there are lots of good folks who come into child welfare and a lot of folks who um, are willing to learn and do things differently. And so I'm really inspired and motivated by that, but seeing people recognize like, oh, we have to think about families differently. We have to think about our work differently. So that's, that kind of fuels some optimism for me. Well, that's good. Uh, so we're going to take a hard turn here and hit you with some mm -hmm. of our rapid fire questions. The first one is the most important one, which is this. Uh, what is your opinion on the Oxford comma? Do you use it? Do you know what it is? And do you make the people in your office use it? So I know what it is, and I'm a minimalist. I don't enjoy an Oxford comma. I think it's unnecessary and a little fussy. All right. And, well, this whole but I don't I don't mess with other people's writing. So if you would like to use an Oxford comma, you know, please have at it. <laughs> well, that's good because I started the whole podcast just to advocate to get more people to use it. So um, now we're X number of episodes in, and you know, so far only half the lawyers I talk to even know what it is let alone uh, use it consciously or unconsciously. So we're keeping a tally. Oh, oh no, God. it's okay. Usually I end the interview here, but we're just going to keep going. So it's totally fine. Uh, what is something that people are obsessed with, but you just don't see the point of? Sports. I Yeah, not, I'm, I'm sure I'm insulting you again. No. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't enjoy sports and I don't understand what people are talking about when they talk about any sport. First of all, mildly offended that just because I'm a guy, you thought that I would be into sports when I've got my virtual <laughs> super nerdy background. I got a Superman figurine over here. Mm -hmm. I got my Captain America flag, mm -hmm. my Thor hammer, um, mm -hmm. my Dilbert plushie. So, you know, I'm not a this is the second interview in a row, actually, where somebody said that. And I said, I'm right there with you. OK, interesting. Yeah, although my family wasn't really big into sports when I was younger. And then I went to college and. I don't know if they were hiding it from me or what, but I came home from college. My brother, my little brother is very into sports. And I came home from college and all of a sudden, all my parents are huge Eagles fans, huge Phillies fans. My dad's got season tickets to the Sixers. And I was like, uh, what happened? I don't know. Was I just not aware of any of this when I was around? But so I, I don't know. I, I guess I grew up in a household that was um, secretly into sports. Interesting. 
what is something you hate but you wish you loved? Hmm. It's definitely not walking. That's a really good question. Something I hate that I wish I loved. Probably like every other form of exercise. <laughs> Thank God I'm like, I can walk because anything else that you ask me to do, I would not enjoy. Well, oh, maybe I enjoy yoga, but anything else I would not enjoy. So thank God for walking. Yeah. And here's the final question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Well, I really, uh, this is a whole other podcast, but I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. Um, and I've just learned so much from her. She's a, um, a shame researcher who kind of helps, has helped me a lot as a manager and a super supervisor helping understand like kind of how to support people and see them for their their full humanity and what they're going through um uh and so one like one thing i've kind of heard her say that i agree with um very much as a manager but also in my work as a lawyer is that uh you ignore other people's feelings at your own peril (laughs) uh so uh i really understand that you can't kind of pretend people's feelings don't exist or are not important. In fact, people are largely motivated and driven to do what they do by their feelings. And so um, I work hard to kind of create space in my own office and for myself to acknowledge feelings and to normalize talking about your feelings and to support people um, who are feeling hard things, which is all my clients. What does that look like in your office? Uh, We are very intentional about checking in with each other all the time. Um, So we, it's been kind of fun in uh, Zoom meetings. We used to have staff meetings once a month and now we meet twice a week because just because there was a sense of like, oh, wow, chaos is, is breaking out. We should really touch base more often and we don't see each other kind of in the office. So we are constantly um, checking in with each other. At the beginning of every, I love our staff meeting so much. Our our team is just such a family. But at the beginning of every staff meeting, we have a check-in question, like a question of the day uh, that everyone goes around and answers. And so that's a great way to um, hear how people are doing. Sometimes we do a quick one, which is like sometimes we'll just say, give a one-word check-in, you know, like one word that talk that uh, describes how you're feeling today. Or sometimes we do another exercise called highs and lows, where we talk about our high point of the last week and our low point of the last week. Sure. Um, and kind of talk, kind of process that out. That takes a while, but it's so worth it because I learned so much about what folks are going through. Um, and it's just a great way for us to kind of connect and commiserate and celebrate. Uh, I'm just so grateful for that space of our staff meetings. Yeah. That sounds great. Maybe something we'll institute here, although probably not. But it's a nice thing to uh, talk about doing that I'll do with my staff, but they don't want to hear about my highs and lows having a newborn in the house. Cause oh, it's you all... have a baby. Right? Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's all it's all highs and lows any minute to oh, minute, yeah. you know? Every moment, every second. It's like, yeah, the weather's changing constantly. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Kathleen, I appreciate you being here. Where can people find you if they want to uh, look you up on socials or on the internet or anywhere else? The most uh, active place that I am is on Twitter. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the child welfare system or the intersection of child welfare and criminal justice, I tweet about that all the time. And it's at family advocat. So family, A-D-V-O-K-A-T. Um, that's the best place to find me.
Sounds good. And we'll put a link to the show notes so people can find you. And again, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.